Every business should have access to high-speed internet, no matter where they are. But getting fast speeds in rural Canada hasn't always been easy, which meant less reliability, scalability, and connectivity. ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions has the network to help you do business virtually anywhere in Canada. With extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're bringing the high speeds of the big city to small towns, to tiny towns, and even no towns. No matter your business size or location, get connected today with ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices of women entrepreneurs in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, guests will speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. Each one inspires us all to take up space within our own communities and within the business world, reminding us that each path can be messy and unique. Join us on the journey, clearing a new path. Serena Viola is currently completing her master's in capacity development and extension at the University of Guelph. She previously completed her undergrad at the University of Toronto in political science and diaspora and transnational studies. Her interests lie in food and community, rural expansion, rural immigration, and rural immigration retention. We talked about her recent survey asking rural Ontario immigrants about access to their cultural foods in their community. Okay, Serena, let's dive right in. Let's talk about the research that you are doing. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. My thesis research is based off of the relationship between rural immigrants and diasporic identifying people, so people living outside of their homeland, and their access to or lack thereof culturally significant foods. And that ranges for all people and people who have been living in Canada for generations and and that aspect of cultural food and where can you find it even if you aren't an immigrant yourself. And so what have you found? I'm on the tail end of my interviews. So I've interviewed about seven people, rural immigrants in the town of Meaford, which is where my case study is taking place. And I'm hearing a lot of people making the two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour drive from Meaford to Toronto in order to pick up cultural foods. Some of them can be as needed as like halal meat. You know, there's really a matter of putting the kids in the car for the weekend and driving down once or every other month. There's no public transportation, which is a whole other thing, but I find that that barrier of, you know, having to move and and do – make that trek for food is is a really interesting conversation to have with people and that it's not as open of a conversation as I think 
some people would like. I think that when I think about food, I think food's exciting and that we'd all have it, but food can also be very taboo. I've done quite a bit of research on like the rural other and how rural communities can be feel very separate from like urban communities. And when you put rural immigrants in that equation as well, it can be quite a bit more isolating. And that I believe echoes within the food systems. I think that's fascinating that we are having people live in rural spaces in Canada, rural and remote Canada, sometimes for generations, and they don't have access to their own cultural food, having to drive hours, put the kids in the car, and only go shopping maybe once every couple of weeks. And yet we want to encourage people to move out of the urban centers and into our rural spaces. I just find that really fascinating. The biggest reason why I've, what I've been hearing about why people have moved to Meaford in particular is, you know, maybe a business opportunity for work. Maybe they had family in um, who immigrated first to Collingwood, which is about a half hour drive. And then something came up in Meaford, people who wanted affordable land to live on. That's been a really big one as well. I think that those were sacrifices that they made and, and that drive every every week, every month is really a, sh- a show of how they're keeping their culture, but but what a sacrifice it is to keep to to have to commute that way. Serena, why did you decide to do this research? I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto in political science and diaspora and transnational studies. And in my fourth year, in my last semester, right before the pandemic, I took a class called Diasporic Foods. And we talked about how food is a carrier of culture, how food is fluent, how it is important, but how it can be appropriated and gentrified, but also created and appreciated and I noticed that in Meaford, where my family has like a hobby farm that my grandparents moved to, and they were rural immigrants, um, as well as my great uncle who currently lives there, thinking about like their experiences, but then also the experiences of the people in the community that I've grown to love and that I've been involved with my whole life. So what do you think we can do about that? I mean, how can we change the structure of communities to make it more culturally attractive uh, and and more inclusive of mm. the reflection of the communities that we want to have, the diversity. Absolutely. I think there's like a paradox of food in the sense of like you have a variety in urban centers. People love holistic, natural food ways of rural centers. And so you have people constantly going up and down the highway in different ways to get what's kind of a necessity or what is intriguing to them. And so I really believe in knowledge mobilization as a way to have conversations about food. My thesis is a exploratory study. So I'm hoping that through these conversations that we can talk about why food matters. Something I've thought about is what if there was a shuttle bus? I know they got rid of Greyhound. What if we had something similar like that specifically to go to grocery stores? What if we made it a priority to municipalities to make sure that their local grocery stores are being represented by the people who are actually there. So for example, Meaford has about, from the 2016 census, a bit over 10,000 residents and more than like 
1,000 residents are immigrants. So I would expect that at least one-tenth of your grocery store is being represented. It's estimated that like by 2026, the Canadian population growth will be solely dependent on immigration. And that's from uh, Bullman et al. in 2007. So it's been a minute. And I think that holds up pretty well. And our big issue is that we need people in rural spaces and rural spaces are what support our cities. 23% of immigrants establish themselves and their families outside of the seven most prominent urban centers in Canada. And that, well, 53% of the overall Canadian population lives outside of these urban centers. So assuming that more of a assimilated or white population that's living in the rural places and much fewer rural immigrants. The rural research does not stay up when it comes to rural immigrants. I feel very backwards using very dated uh, statistics, but it's it's what I have. Yeah, it must be so challenging for someone doing research about rural spaces. Stats Canada doesn't record a lot of information about people that aren't white. For whatever reason, yeah. race wasn't something that was asked about in rural communities. Even the new census numbers it's difficult to see any reflection of diversity in the numbers, even though we know that people exist and are moving to rural and remote spaces. And we can't find the research. And that's a problem. I think about a lot of young families who move to rural places or have kids in school. A lot of people that I've talked to for my project have kids in and the local community school. And I wonder about the children's experiences with their classmates. When you don't see or are around cultures that aren't your own, you don't know how to how to respond. And, and it really is a responsibility of as us as a society to be inclusive. And I think that when you don't see certain people in certain areas, the issue is why not? Why isn't it inclusive? Something else I've thought about, I uh, was helping um, doing some outreach on another research project. I was reaching out to places of worship in order to find um, seniors um, in order to talk to them. And to see the places of worship, it's only really Christian churches. I think in all of like Grey Bruce County, there's like one um, Islamic community center, and that's a big area. So kind of looking and seeing like who's there even a synagogue or a Hindu temple. In my opinion, those are part of the conversations when we look at making rural communities inclusive to immigrants. I wanted to ask you how you got your interviews. How did you reach out to people and get them to accommodate? I went business to business, basically, um, along the main strip and asked if I could put a sign up with a little pull tab on it. I don't think that was very successful, um, to be quite honest, but going in and actually speaking to business owners was good. And then again, through uh, what was really lovely is that the Municipal Chamber of Commerce was able to be like, okay, here are the people I know who who are living and working in, in Meaford or are running their businesses. Um, Meaford, 
I think it's been the past two years, we now have a, um, it's an Indian Mexican food restaurant and it's delicious. Something like that, like growing up, I never thought I would see that there. It's called the Meaford Social. I recommend that everyone goes. It's amazing. Knowing that there are immigrant owned businesses around. And so that's how I've been able to talk to a lot of people. I've also had the issue, of course, with having a language barrier. And I think that that's something that I could have considered more when coming up with this project. There is also a hesitancy as well. So having these conversations with people, I've, you know, had like off the record conversations with people and then being like, we've lived up here for 20 years. I grew up rural at home. So I wanted to live rural when I immigrated, but really not willing to have that conversation. And I don't know if it comes from not wanting to draw attention when you may already feel othered from the community. I, I, I'm here to respect that, of course. You know, you and I were having a conversation previously before we um, put on, turned on the mics about hubs, community hubs, and that in small rural communities and remote areas, libraries have come become the place where people gather, the safe place mm. for marginalized people. And it's because there are no barriers at the library. You don't even have to have a library card and anyone can get a library card. Mm -hmm. And libraries have become more responsible for educating us about marginalized groups. And yeah. I, I wonder, you know, is that their responsibility? Meaford just redid their library, brand new library, right in the middle of town. And and I think it's getting its traction, but I think that another way that we could think about it is that like we have a community garden. I spoke to the manager of the community garden who's an immigrant herself. What if we kept like a little bit of a seed bank at the library with, you know, maybe different cultural vegetables or fruits that, you know, we think could work here, but maybe you just wouldn't be able to find it by yourself. If you can rent snowshoes from the library and a fishing rod, can you rent a walk? I think that some some libraries do. Meaford, I'm not completely sure. But even if we started an initiative like that, something that maybe you just want to try. And I think, too, that I feel very curbside effect by it. The idea of the curbside effect is that if you make the curbside, it helps more than the person that you're intending to help. So not only does a curbside help someone with a wheelchair, it helps um, a mother or a father with their child going down in a stroller, or it helps someone who maybe is a broken leg, or it's just easier on everyone. So by making cultural foods more available, I think that the community grows. I don't think it's just a tactic to get people there. I don't like looking at it that way. I know that the Canadian government was trying to move later cohort immigrants to see if they would move to rural communities because they already have an established foundation here. So it's assumed. And so they'd be more likely to move. I think it's more than that. I think that people are worth more than their labor. And if we're just going to look at moving people to rural communities in the sense of like to do jobs, that's why people don't stay. And that's also, that does no justice for the person and who they are. And it does no justice for the communities and what they are and also what they can be. Moving labor away from the focus of rural immigration and what the and what that goal is, is, is very interesting. And I don't think that that it's brought up much. I agree. I think that we're looking at immigration in rural spaces in the wrong context. We are bringing in migrant workers across Canada help yeah. with agriculture. And we had issues during the pandemic. Yes. And 
why aren't we looking at building a life, helping people immigrate to Canada so that they can build a life here, not just send money back to another country, but create a life for their families here that they can be proud of and in a country that they can be proud of, up to proud to live in, proud to build a life, a community and a business. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think from a capitalist mindset, um, I'm very UBI, very much a community-centered living wage. I can't speak for businesses or farmers or anything like that, but I think that it's about sustainability. I think that what COVID showed us is that our system with migrant workers isn't sustainable. And I think that if there was more money put that way, um, and even if that so far be from the government, that we could have more resilient communities, more resilient foodways, more resilient rural settings so that people are are working jobs that are, are, are decent, are living in places that are decent. First summer of COVID, when COVID was spreading along the migrant farmer housing, and people were sending pictures of like, this is what we were living in and stuff like that. And I think that there's a basic level of care that we need to start with. And just because something is there doesn't mean that it's good or that that should be the minimum. As a young person, I would hope that you don't have a litany of things that keep you up at night. But what do you find troublesome right now in the world that we live in? I'm sure there's lots of things, but what do you find the most troubling right now? I think that on the research side and on the rural community side, I'm worried about the way that rural communities will hold up in the next 30 to 50 years. I think resilient people live in rural communities. I think important people live there. I think that there's so much wonderful work that happens there. But that being said, I think that we see this run to the urban type of way, like even just the way that we're expected to as young people, like make money or go to school, you know, go to university, get a job. It's showing that that those patterns don't work anymore. For us, it's not a sustainable structure, but how do we make sure that rural communities are really stable, especially as like a lot of them have older, an older population. And when I think about rural communities, I genuinely think about like food systems as well. How will Canada feed itself? No farmers, no food. And not that everyone in rural Ontario or rural Canada is a farmer, but they're they're doing so much work that helps cities. And maybe what we need to not be focused on is the city as as a whole, but making sure that the systems are there in place to talk about rural communities first, and especially about food systems and exporting and importing foods on the mass scale that Canada does. Could we be more reliant on ourselves and our food systems or more self-sustainable? I think there's a lot of work being put into that or eating local or eating what's grown, but I think there's a, there's a nuance between that and also having cultural foods. And I think that with such a diverse country, uh, it's important that we that we meet in the middle and we do it in, in a way that's sustainable for both the environment and for communities as well. What are you hopeful for in the future? I'm hopeful for initiatives like this one and that people are having conversations and continue to speak up about things that they find. I really think that we've become such an individualistic society where it's about me and my property and my money and my culture. And it's not about the community anymore. And I I think that we're we're bridging back out. And I think that I'm hopeful that we will be focused on the 
care and nurturing of our communities and of our people than simply cash flow. What if we made libraries even more accessible? Where would that take us? Or like we spoke earlier about like internet more accessible. Of course, the first thing when you think about internet, especially with COVID, we think about children and their online schooling. I was also thinking about in rural communities. I know a lot of immigrants use WhatsApp to talk to family members and Facebook. I hope that that development doesn't, that the development we make as a country and as a province is doesn't stop in the GTA. When are you going to be finishing your research? And you have to defend it then too, right? When is all that going to be completed? I'm hoping for this summer. I, I hope I will be on track for that. Um, COVID's definitely sent a few curveballs. I didn't go to Guelph for my undergraduate degree. So learning a whole university system online has been something. But then again, like I have classmates who were doing it from halfway across the world. Uh, the program's been great. My advisor, Dr. Lazan, has been awesome. But there's always a hiccup with doing it online. So I'm hoping <laughs> before September, and I'm hoping that I can wrap up my interviews uh, shortly. We need young minds like yours, Serena, putting your mind into research, putting your time into solving problems and coming up with solutions for our rural communities. So I really appreciate you joining us today. And I'm so excited to hear about what you put out into the world. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and leave a review. It really helps others find us. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by Imagine Dev Studios. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Temp Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to this studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of Indigenous communities and reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time.